The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, and then when you have found that scripture, you We'll also turn to Leviticus chapter 24. And our subject this afternoon is what we talked about the last time uh, in our tabernacle study, and that is the table of showbread. And this is described in the 25th chapter of Exodus, verses 23 through 30. Uh, this part is the command for making the table. And then in Leviticus chapter 24, there are instructions for making the bread that was placed on the table. I just want to read one verse in Exodus 25, and then we're going to go over to Leviticus uh, to read about the bread of the table. So in Exodus 25, verse 23, Thou shalt also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half The height thereof. That's the command to make the table. Now, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse number 5. Leviticus 24, verse number 5. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Now, I haven't time this evening to do a comprehensive review of previous sermons. It's been just a, a while, quite a while, two or three weeks since we've uh, been on this subject. But I would like to mention just a few items that will help the continuity. Uh, I've told you in previous sermons that it would be really good if we could just have three or four hours uh, to get together and, and go through this entire thing. And that would help uh, all of this to be more cohesive in our minds. But I know that doesn't work. Uh, you're not going to listen to me that long without falling asleep, especially when we think of the great Apostle Paul, who when he preached till midnight, people fell asleep on him. So I know that you're not going to listen to me, and I don't want you falling out of chairs and falling out of windows uh, because you can't stay awake. So we're just very quickly, we're going to get into the message, and we are discussing this small table in the tabernacle, not much different than the size of a coffee table. I wish we could put the picture back up on the screen, but I can't do that for you. Uh, uh, If you could visualize it for just a few minutes as I speak, that would be good. But unfortunately, our projector is down. But I was looking at dimensions for this table in the text. And uh, when I was studying this, I took out uh, a tape measure and put it next to uh, my desk that I study from. And uh, I looked at those dimensions and the table height of this table of showbread was about three inches below my, uh, my desk height. And so I, I decided by looking at that that the ancient Israelites probably were shorter than average Americans. 
I'm not very tall myself, just a little bit under six feet four, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to to bend over a table that's only 27 inches tall. And so my conclusion is that either the Israelites were very short people, or they all had very bad backs. In 1 Samuel, it says that Saul was head and shoulders above the people, and that really might not impress us too much if we think about people not being much taller than me. But on the other hand, you look at Goliath, just under 10 feet tall. Well, to the Israelites, he would certainly uh, match what they would think in their minds as a giant. So this was a very small table that was used, but it's really, really big in its symbolisms. The table of showbread is significant because, one of the reasons it is, because it follows the pattern of other articles that were made of wood that was overlaid with gold. And we've been through that typology of wood and gold many, many times, so we'll not labor it here tonight. It also had a border that was around the top that was called a crown. I believe that that symbolizes royalty. Jesus, the Son of God, was the God-man. The Bible shows us that he was born to be a king. At his birth, the wise men followed a brilliant light that led them westward where they came to Jerusalem. They asked for directions for the one who was to be born, who was born, who was to be the king in Israel. So the table does have its significance, but the specialty of the table is what's most important, and that is the bread that was placed on it. Just as the altar is, is defined by the sacrifice of it, as the labor is defined by the water that goes into it, as the candlestick is defined by the light and by the oil that, run, that fuels that light, so the table becomes significant because of this bread that's placed on it. Now, the first implication of the bread is what we talked about in that last message. The purpose of the bread was nourishment. It is for nourishment. That's first on your listening sheet tonight. The purpose of the bread is nourishment. This bread nourished Israel symbolically because not all of Israel ate of it. It was only for the priest. Each week they replenished the bread that was on the table as they baked new loaves and then the old bread was taken and given to the priest that was theirs and as they served in the tabernacle but it's not eaten by other Israelites and then we understand of course the reason for that it's because the priests are representatives of the people and as they ate of the bread they represented the people and that was symbolic that God provides for his people that God nourishes his people both physically and spiritually you might remember that Uh, I remarked about how Jesus used manna as a type of him. He was the true bread that came down from heaven. Manna is what God used to physically feed the people. And in the New Testament, Jesus added the spiritual implications to manna to show that each believer is nourished in his soul by coming to him who is the heavenly bread of life. Whoever takes of him, Jesus said, never hungers and never thirsts. And there's an interesting perspective about that because his words can be taken both physically and spiritually. The spiritual side of that is that Jesus satisfies the longing of our soul. Uh, Jesus um, satisfies this desperate desire that we have for peace in our hearts and to be reconciled to God. That's the spiritual aspect of his nourishment. And then we, we also have the promise of heaven where there is no need of physical replenishment. Our bodies in heaven are, 
are made to do without the need of physical processes. And so in both ways, Jesus can say, the one who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. And he can mean it both physically and spiritually. Now, secondly, we need to discuss the participants in the bread. We got kind of a start in this last time. And as we speak of the participation of the bread, we think of fellowship. I've already said that the bread is for the priest. It's for Aaron and his sons. They enjoyed the unique privileges of priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood is emblematic of privileges that belong to believer priests in this New Testament era. That each of us partakes of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As Peter wrote, he said, you are a chosen generation, you are royal priesthood. There's none of us that needs an intermediary between us and God because the scripture says that we are priests. And that's what a priest function is, to stand between us and God. But we don't have that today as they did in the Old Testament uh, because every believer today is a priest. And as priests, we fellowship with God and by extension... All who believe in Jesus Christ have fellowship with each other. Church is the fellowship of God's people. And as we continue with Christ and with each other, we do so in a common faith. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And this is what unites us as the people of God. Now, specifically, we need to talk about fellowship in the church. And fellowship in the church is centered on three important aspects. I gave you the first of these the last time. The first is acceptable service. And I mean that the church is the place of acceptable service. Peter said that you are living stones that are built up into a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood that's given the work of making spiritual sacrifices. The word of God says sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now, in consideration of that, we look at both the tabernacle and the temple that replaced it as being emblematic of the church of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be very careful to note about this, that I'm not saying in any way that there was a church in the Old Testament, that the tabernacle is their church or the temple was their church. No, there is no church in the Old Testament, not as covenant theologians teach, and the church was not a replacement for Israel. These are two separate things. Israel and the church are different. There's a plan of God for each of them. And that's not going to be settled out completely until Christ comes, until the rapture, until we go through, uh, the world goes through tribulation and until the millennium. Now, these two places, with the temple replacing the tabernacle, were the only places that priests could serve. You look in the Old Testament and you see what happened when Israel tried to serve God in other ways, when they tried to take sacrifices away from the tabernacle or the temple. You read many times in, in, in the, the Kings, for instance, how Israel, in Chronicles and so forth, how that Israel had high places, that they had groves of trees where they placed their idols, and that was never acceptable to God. That was not the place that God set aside to, have, to make the sacrifices. That place is always at the temple and uh, at, the, at, at the tabernacle in the time of Moses. And in that way, we can see, I think, that the tabernacle and the temple are emblematic of the church as the church is the only place where the believer priest is authorized to do the work of God. 
Every Christian then should be a member of a New Testament church because it's only the church that Christ gave his authority to in his commission. When he commissioned the apostles in Matthew 28, he spoke to 11 men who were the charter members of the first church. That commission was not given to them as they were individuals. It's given to them as a, as a group, as they are members of the first Lord's church. And we actually learn this from the book of Ephesians where it says that the apostles were put in the church first. They are first in the church and all the teaching and responsibility of equipping God's people comes originally through those apostles. In Acts, after Pentecost, the church is found fellowshipping with one another and the Bible says continuing in the apostles' doctrine. And interestingly it says, and eating bread from place to place, from house to house. Pentecost is often confused as the founding of the church. We don't believe so. We believe that Pentecost was the empowerment of the church. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And then after that, the church becomes prominent in Acts as it describes the growth of God's people who are the church. Now, the importance of this is that the church is the one that has authorization. As you read in Acts and you look at those who become converts to Christianity, we're always talking about an association with the church. I've been asked before about the Ethiopian eunuch and how, how did that work out for him as far as the church. Well, he was baptized by Philip in the desert and that was his connection to the church. It's the baptism of a deacon. And then when Philip preached in Samaria, there were uh, many people that were saved. And what did the church in Jerusalem do? It sent Peter and John to assist with those converts. And so what you always see in the New Testament is this connection to the New Testament church. Never, never in the scriptures do we find anyone but the church that has this kind of authority. Now today things have changed somewhat. We have parachurch organizations that claim that they can do the same work that the church does. Uh, I, I've mentioned several times about a young couple that wanted to join our church and when they came I questioned them about their baptism and they told me that they had been baptized on the beach by YWAM. For those of you that are unfamiliar with that, that is Youth with the Mission. And I said to them, YWAM does not have authority to baptize anyone. The authority of baptism is in the church. And we see that in the commission that's given to the apostles. They were the first church. And what Jesus said to them was, you, you the church, you, you go and make disciples. You teach them. You baptize them. And Jesus gave the church that authority. So I'm telling you that acceptable service can come only through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the church that sends out missionaries. And though missionary converts may, may never meet the sending church, they do have that connection through the missionary until they're organized into New Testament churches themselves. If we look in the New Testament, this is the way that Paul started churches. He was commissioned by Christ. And you remember, commissioned by the church at Antioch to organize disciples into fellowships that became functioning churches who then became authorizers of other New Testament churches. And so it goes on and on from that time until this. We have an unbroken chain of churches down through the ages until we come to local churches just like we have right here 
in Berean Baptist Church. A table is a place of fellowship, an inviting place of fellowship. Families gather around tables to eat. That's probably the most common fellowship that we have. And the table of showbread shows this, this fellowship, and it points to the church as the place of acceptable service. Well, next, the fellowship is centered on abundant supply. That's letter B, abundant supply. Twelve loaves were placed on the table. And think for just a minute, how many tribes are there in Israel? Well, there are twelve. That means that each of them was represented. Uh, There's nourishment. This teaches that there is nourishment for all of God's people. The priests were told to replenish the bread continually. And that showed, by example, that there is always an abundant supply for God's people. There's bread enough for everyone. And that's an Old Testament promise that carries over into the new. God said in Isaiah chapter 55, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Listen to the end of that second verse once again. Let your soul delight in fatness. That's a Hebrew word that means abundance. It says that there is plenty for everyone at the Lord's table. The last time I mentioned the Corinthian church and how they had distorted fellowship at the Lord's table. Some were left without because of selfishness and hoarding. And so Paul said to them, this is not the Lord's table. When you gather this way, you can't eat like that and honor God in that way. There is no selfishness at his table and there's always enough for everybody. Here's a, a little interesting observation for you that This Lord's table that we have right here, symbolically there, that is always enough for God's people. There's been a time or two in these past 17 years as we've gone through Lord's Supper observances uh, that when the entire congregation was passed through, we get the trays back and maybe there's only four or five cups that are left in the tray. Back then, and and just recently, we've had as many as seven deacons with me. That's eight men. So if we get three or four of those cups returned, and I'm going to pass it out to the men that are standing here, how is it they all get a part of that? What do we do? Well, some people say, well, yeah, what do we do? Can we we go back over to the kitchen and just get some more of the grape juice and, and then pour cups? No, we don't do that. I just stand right here, and I take some of those cups and pour just a little bit into that next cup. Pass that out to the men, and that's enough for everybody. I, I, I notice some of the children that uh, when they take the Lord's Supper, um, they stick their tongue in the cup. Make sure they get that last drop. You don't really need to do that. Some adults do that too, I know. Um, the Lord, uh, in, in the Lord's Supper, you remember that, you, we'll see it here in a, just a little bit, uh, we'll talk about that. The Lord said, drink ye all of it. He, he didn't mean drink it down to the last drop. He means all of you partake of it. And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We fellowship with each other. And the Lord always has plenty for us. 
Did Jesus have enough to feed 5,000 people? Well, the answer was yes. He only had five loaves to work with. And so whenever it seems that there isn't enough, God always supplies enough. The widow of Zarephath told Elijah that she had only a little meal in her barrel and a little cruise, or a little oil in her cruise. And she said, my son and I were going to eat this and then we were going to die. There had been no rain in the land for three years and there was a famine. It's the last that the widow had and so she hadn't any place to get any more. But Elijah didn't care about that. Elijah just said, that doesn't matter. Make me a cake first or make me some bread first. He said to her, don't worry. You're not going to run out of meal. You're not going to run out of oil. You'll have enough until the rain comes. And she did. David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging, begging bread. Now, obviously, the spiritual implication of that is the most important. But what it teaches is that we can be down and out. We can be drained. We can think that we don't have anything. We might think that God is nowhere to be found. And what are we to do in those times like that when it seems we can't find God and there just isn't enough spiritual supply for us? One of the things the Bible teaches is that we need to go to the house of the Lord. It's good when they say, when someone says, let's go to the house of the Lord. Because in the fellowship of the church, that's where your burdens are lifted. And if we're the kind of church that God wants us to be, we're going to help satisfy the needs of, of people. We'll be refreshed by the abundant supply of fellowship and the nourishment of God's word. And I want you to pay attention to that specifically, the nourishment of God's word. Because no matter what we do, we always come back to the importance of God's word. There is an abundant supply in the word. And yet I wonder why there are so many churches that act as if they only have one or two items in their barrel. The word of God says that he provides a feast that is fat. There is plenty to eat. There is so much there that we never run out of good things to learn about our God. Proverbs says to honor the Lord with your substance and your barns will be filled with plenty. God promised that he would restore Israel. Through the prophet Joel, he said, And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed, and ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. What does he mean by shame? Well, he means they're never going to come up short. They're never going to think that our God doesn't have enough for us. No, he always does, and God always supplies. And then you know what comes after that? This is quoted by Peter on Pentecost. Peter quoted Joel and what came next was an explosion in the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people being saved. Now I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 for just a minute. And we can share this scripture in the fellowship of the church. This is one of Paul's doxologies of praise that is found so often in his letters. This is Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14 says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God." Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Listen there, look and see what Paul says. Filled with all the fullness of God. Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. And what is Paul speaking of? Where is this done? In the church. Christ receives glory in the church. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There is a reason to be in the fellowship of the church because this is the place of God's glory, just as God showed his glory in the tabernacle. And do we need to be reminded of the story of the prodigal that Jesus told? The prodigal came to himself after he was eating with the pigs. He said, I know where there's plenty of food. My father's servants have more than enough. So how much does my father have for me and I am his son? Luke fifteen seventeen. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. There's a third observation about the fellowship of the church. Thirdly is active service. The church is the place of active service. It's a place of acceptable service. It's a place of abundant supply and a place of active service. How many of you are happy that as you listen to this sermon, you don't have to stand up? How many of you like that? At home, when I'm working on sermons, I, I spend long hours at my desk, and as I sit, my back starts to hurt. So I have a desk that rises to standing height so I can work standing up. And I stand for long periods of time until I can't stand any longer. Most of you would not want to stand up during the sermon. It's much harder for you to sleep that way, so you don't, you don't want to stand up. I'm in favor of that, though. I'm in favor of standing up to keep everybody awake. But I know I can't get that passed. Nobody's going to vote for it. So we have chairs to sit on, and the chairs are acceptably comfortable, we hope. But I, I think about that, and I, I think of Wilson Maungo and how sometimes he has started churches by gathering people under a tree. It's not unusual for people in Africa to listen to sermons, the preaching of God's Word, for hours Preaching goes on for hours, and I'm sure that they would prefer not to stand up. They would like to sit down, and that's one of the reasons why Brother Wilson uh, sends requests, send us some money over here so we can build a church building, so we can get some places to sit, so we can get people out of the rain and make them comfortable, let them sit down. That's what happens in our church today. But in the tabernacle, there wasn't a place to sit. When the priest went inside, he never sat. He trimmed the wicks on the candlestick. He put coals on the altar of incense. He put bread on the table of showbread. He never sat, never rested. He kept busy all the time. On the fringe of the blue ephod, there were bells. God said the bells must keep ringing. If they stop, the priest will die. 
So God intended when the priest is in the tabernacle, he is to be busy. And that's because he was a type of Christ. And the scripture says that Christ is always interceding for his people. And that's the work of a priest. His work is intercession. So he dared not stop. He kept the bells ringing. Because of that, there was a legend that came out in the intertestamental period. I doubt that this is true, but it illustrates the point. Uh, the legend was that the priest would have a rope tied to his ankle. If the bell stopped ringing and he died, as God said he would, uh, if they stopped, then they would be able to pull the priest out because they couldn't go into the holiest place to fetch him. So they said they tied a rope to his ankle. If he died, then they could just pull him out with the rope. That's about active service. It's about being busy all of the time. Same requirement of being active and ready was, was present in the celebration of the Passover. Moses told the people, get ready to go. The Passover was the last plague on Egypt. And Moses said, this time it's going to work. This time Pharaoh is going to let you go. So you be ready. He says in Exodus 12, 11, And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, with shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Tabernacle was a movable structure. It's a tent that could be packed up and moved. God appeared to Israel in a cloud. And whenever that cloud moved, it meant Israel must begin to pack it up, tear everything down, get it all ready to go. And so the priest always had this in his mind as he, as he worked. He always did it expecting that cloud is going to move. I've got to keep busy and I must be ready to go. Does this remind you of Jesus? I think it does. At 12 years old, he was already busy. His parents took him to Jerusalem for Passover. When the celebration was over, they started home. They were on their way back to Nazareth, and they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. Now, they're traveling in a large entourage, and so at first they didn't miss him, but pretty soon nobody's seen Jesus. So they realized he's not there. Three days passed before they knew. And where was he? He was in the temple. He was in the courts conversing with the doctors of the law. And they were astonished at the amazing grasp he had of scripture. Somehow Mary and Joseph were tipped off where they could find Jesus. They searched and searched and finally they went to the temple and there they found him. And you remember that Mary let him know that it grieved them because he was lost. And Jesus answered them according to their lack of faith. He said... How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? This is what he meant. Why are you anxious? Providence to provide for me. Why are you worried? Now that's good advice for, for anyone, isn't it? Why do you worry? Worrying never solved anything. Worry's lack of trust in God. Now I want you to listen to the last part again. Wished ye not... That I must be about my father's business. Don't you know that I must be doing my father's business? Here's an interesting interpretation of these words. The King James translates the phrase, Don't you know I should be about my father's business? A.T. Robertson, one of the Baptist great Greek scholars, says that this was a common Greek idiom that means in my father's house. The ESV translates it that way. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my 
father's house. There's nothing wrong with business if we understand the idiom. The father's business is done where? It's done in the father's house. Jesus told Mary, I'm where you should expect to find me, in my father's house. And so if we look at that and we see that where he was, the temple, that that is a, a type of the church, then the place where the father's business is done is in the father's house. That's the church of the living God. Jesus taught active service in a parable. I won't go through it all, but just this part in Luke chapter 12. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. What is this parable about? Well, Jesus meant that a servant who is busy about doing the Lord's work would be rewarded accordingly. Now, we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we do here, we preach that Christ is going to return. We wait for him to return. And when he returns, he expects to find his church busy. Busy doing his work. Acceptable service to God is always busy service. So we're to be doing servants, not dumb spectators. Now, thirdly... And I don't have much time for this, so I'm just barely going to open up this part for you tonight. Number three is the process of the bread. The process of the bread, and that is refinement. Now, if we go back to Leviticus 24 in the fifth verse, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, two-tenth deals shall be in one cake. The bread must be made of fine flour. Now, I, I suppose that we would expect that the flour for the bread would be supplied by the people just as they supplied the oil that was put into the lamps. And that provision for bread, I think, surely takes us back to the offerings that God required. And one special offering that God required was the meal offering or the grain offering. That was a sweet savor offering. I, may, I hope that you remember when we studied this about... Uh, that sweet savor offerings were those that reflected the goodness of Christ's life. That Christ makes up for all of our deficiencies. He had a perfect life that was lived in obedience to his Father. We often say that we're saved by Christ's death. Of course, that's true. We are saved by his death. But it's equally true, and it's right to say that we're saved by his life. He had to have a human life before he could die. His human life must be a perfect life before he could earn righteousness that would be given to us and be accepted by God. Fine flour, the scripture says. There's a process that the flour has to go through to make it suitable for baking bread. It doesn't work to take coarse kernels of wheat Take them straight out of the field. You can't do that. Uh, bread would be very easy to make if all you needed to do was just thresh the wheat and throw in some kernels of corn. But today we have automated processes. It starts with a combine, with a harvester that moves across the field, picking the heads of wheat and threshing them and cleaning them all in one process. And from there it goes into storage silos that are called grain elevators. There it's picked up by trucks and then sent to the mill. In the process, the grain is hardly touched by human hands until it comes out a finished product that is a loaf of bread. 
Not much manual labor is involved, especially in that finished product. But if you decide, well, I don't want that. I'm going to bake my own bread. Well, you can do that if you don't want the automated process. So how do you start? Some of you ladies that bake, how do you start? Well, you don't start by going out back. If you had some wheat out there and pulling some, some grains of wheat, the heads off the wheat, and then take them and throw them into the oven. No, what you do is you go to the grocery store and you buy a bag of refined flour and then you probably put that into a bread making machine. So manual labor for making bread, it's pretty much lost on us today. But not in those days. Making bread, everything had to be done by hand. Getting grain from the field into a loaf of bread, making a loaf of bread was a painstaking process. The process of it is the sifting, the beating, the kneading of the dough. Uh, going back to that beating, the beating out of those kernels of wheat, the intense fire of the oven. All of that is necessary before you have a finished product. And this is just another remarkable way that God has chosen to show what happened to Jesus in his life. What did he have to go through to make him the Savior who could satisfy God for our sins? We're going to look at that next time in the next part. And that will finish our messages on the table. We have too much to do tonight. So we're going to look at it next time. God just has remarkable ways of teaching us. Now it's, it's terribly sad that most of our people in Baptist churches know so little about Christ. Oh, they think that they know much about him. But they haven't seen him in the rich, rich symbolisms of the tabernacle. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote... The things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament were written to teach the New Testament church. And when he wrote that, his quotation was mainly about the bad things that happened. All the holes that Israel fell in. He says, you don't want to do that, so I'm warning you about that. So he was pretty much telling them, giving them the examples to let them know what they shouldn't do. Well, he would also tell you that there were many good things. There were many precious types and figures that teach the beauty of Jesus, the Savior. And it's so true. It is so true. There's so much to learn about the beauty of Jesus Christ. One of those pictures we have is the Lord's Supper. And that comes straight out of the Old Testament, out of the Passover, and the eating of bread and drinking of the cup. Now, it's nourishing to be in the fellowship of the church. So I, I just pray that the Lord would help us to look for him on every page of the Bible. Every page of the Bible. To know Christ more is to love him more. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. I'm going to close in prayer now. Uh, I, as we pray if our musicians and our deacons would come for the administration. And then we're going to sing. Uh, first, after I'm finished praying, we're going to sing the communion hymn. So let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Truly, we do say, blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Thank you for that sacrifice of Calvary that was made. Thank you that there is a, a provision that's made for us in that sacrifice. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And we thank you that he poured out, gave up his precious blood for the redemption of our sins. Lord, as we picture that in the supper tonight, may you... Uh, replenish us in our spirit help us to see christ tonight in all that we do here bless us lord as we fellowship together as your church in this special communion service 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.